And then Andrew, he has the music in the folder and he goes to a Pepsi machine and then he looks to the chair and the music's gone. What happened to the folder? I think that Fletcher took the folder. He knew Tanner wasn't going to be a great. So I think Fletcher looks for opportunities and seizes them. So I think Fletcher just maybe happened to be nearby and took the folder. Damien Chazelle's blistering, chaotic, and astonishing film, Whiplash, not only is it one of the most universally loved films this century, but it's just my tempo. And it really is astounding. It's perfect beat-by-beat production, acting, story. The music's incredible. It won a few Oscars, deservedly so. And it's just an incredible debut. It's one of the better debuts of the century for any filmmaker. And in my opinion, it's still Damien Chazelle's best movie. I think it probably still is his best movie. First Man is still my favorite Damien Chazelle movie. And obviously La La Land had more, more Oscar nominees than any movie in history, I believe. So it's also a very loved film. Not to mention Babylon. Maybe his most divisive movie yet. But when you go back to Whiplash, you see the genius in storytelling, the brilliant director that he is. Written and directed by Damien Chazelle, Whiplash came out in 2014. On IMDb, it is an 8.5, wow. putting it at number 41 on the user rating list for all-time films there, with 951,000 ratings and reviews, which is absurd. Rotten Tomatoes, it is, it is a 94% critic score, 94% audience score. On Letterboxd, Whiplash is a 4.4. Very good. I believe it's the top 20 movie on there as well. Wow. And on a budget of just... million. Whiplash grossed $49 million at the box office. It won three Academy Awards off five nominations, including winning Best Supporting Actor for J.K. Simmons, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound Mixing, as well as nominations for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. When it first came out, it premiered in six theaters, grossing $130,000. That's $22,000 per theater finishing in fourth place, but after three months and earning $7 million to cap- capitalize on the Academy Awards, the film Whiplash opened to 1,000 theaters, and it ended up pulling in $49 million total at the box office. And this is actually a Blumhouse film. I know her. Jason Blum from Blumhouse, who's famous for producing horror films, actually funded helped fund this movie. Yeah, so obviously they built their studio off the Paranormal Activity movies, mm-hmm. And from 2010 to 2014, doing two to four movies a year. But then Whiplash in 2014 was the best film they produced up until that point. And Get Out as well, another Best Picture nominee and another fantastic film. I think that Blum, Blumhouse producing this film, they saw Jason Blum saw the brilliance of the script. This was a Sundance Lab film, so Damien Giselle made it with Sundance in their program. And that's what he did with his short film. So this was just a short film with Johnny Simmons, I believe, played... The role of Andrew, J.K. did play Fletcher again in that short film. And so the short film was actually that first studio band practice scene. So that's about 18 minutes long. So it's that entire interaction from Andrew stepping into the studio band room for the first time to being destroyed by Fletcher and then by the end of it being mostly torn down. So that was the entire short film that he made at the Sundance Labs. And then it was just such a, a, a hit. It was so well done that he was able to get funding for a feature film. And then this won the audience award at Sundance. It was a big hit at Sundance and then it got distribution. So this worked from the ground up and it's just really impressive. It was such a good short script that he managed to get an accomplished veteran actor like JK Simmons involved. That's something that's so great about Sundance labs is it, it connects young filmmakers and up and coming students with 
actual film producers and actual film actors to maybe step into the shoes and play a role in this young guy's little short film. He loved the script, so Jake. His little short film. Yeah, so J.K. was like, I, I love this role. This, there's a lot of potential here, and he clearly saw that. J.K. is very smart. He also did the same thing with Juno. He saw that Juno was like a really great script and held, and was acted in that, and he was like the biggest name in that film at that time. So he has a great eye for excellent screenwriting, That I think, as an actor. And then Whiplash is just, in a lot of ways, the J.K. Simmons, Simmons show. Oh, it's a two-character study, yeah. but J.K. Simmons is the key to this film being a masterpiece that it is. Now, this film follows Andrew Nyman, Neiman, sorry, Andrew Neiman, played by Miles Teller, who is an ambitious young jazz drummer in pursuit of rising to the top of his elite conservatory, as well as being just one of the great drummers of all time in the 21st century. Terrence Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons, is an instructor known for his terrifying teaching methods, discovers Andrew, and transfers the aspiring drummer into his top jazz ensemble, forever changing the young man's life. But Andrew's passion to achieve perfection quickly spirals into obsession as his ruthless teacher pushes him to the brink of his ability and his sanity. I have some great fun facts for this film as well. If Let's I would, hear him. I'd love to just run through them. So the entire film of Whiplash was shot in just 19 days. And nearly a full day was dedicated to a scene in Fletcher's office between Andrew and Fletcher that got cut from the final movie. However, Damien Chazelle believes that this scene ultimately helped Miles and J.K. develop their chemistry for the film. The film was shot again in 19 days, but it was also edited and submitted to Sundance in just 10 weeks, which is insane. Wow. Three months, basically. For the slapping scene, J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller filmed several takes with Simmons only miming the slap. For the final take, Simmons and Teller decided to film the scene with a real genuine slap. This is the take that is in the film. It always works out that way. There's always, like, the story you hear about someone <laughs> getting hit on camera. And you're like, oh, we tried it, like, ten times without getting hit. Jonah Hill and the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> with Berthold? Yeah. So yeah. Like, he's like, Scorsese's like, how about if he actually hits you this time? And that's always the take that's He laid used. him out. Yeah. <laughs> it always works like that. J.K. Simmons has won 47 awards for his role as Fletcher, obviously including the top prestigious award of Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards. I think it was absolutely no competition for any other actor in that category that year. He's that good in this movie. And ironically, well, not ironically, but Ethan Hawke, he was nominated as well for Boyhood. Uh -huh. And that's a role that he had been doing already for 10 years, essentially, because this is the this was something that he'd been developing with Linklater for that long. And then J.K. Simmons only shot this in 19 days. So it's kind of <laughs> interesting. Like, obviously, he put a ton of work into it. But Boyhood was shot over the course of 10 years. Yeah. Ethan Hawke putting that much work into it in terms of his time and growth as an actor. J.K. busted his butt to be Fletcher and was perfect for the role. Only filmed in 19 days. The irony, yeah. It's, it's a funny thing, the way to look at it. Now, having taught himself to play the drums at age 15, Miles Teller performed much of the drumming scene in Whiplash. Supporting actor and jazz drummer Nate Lang, who plays Taylor's rival, Carl Tanner, in the film. He's the first core drummer that we meet in the movie. He trained Teller in the specifics of jazz drumming, including changing his grip from match to traditional. For certain scenes, professional drummer Kyle Crane served as Teller's drum double. You can tell that Tanner is a real drummer. For sure. Yeah. But about 40% of Miles Teller's drumming was actually used in the soundtrack for Whiplash. That's fantastic. And you can see, like, they absolutely cast real musicians. And these are these are real pros. And it really makes a difference. You can see, I mean, I'm not a musician, but it just looks right. Like, if I'm, I'm watching this movie, I'm like, 
this seems like these are real musicians, you know what I mean? They're really blowing into their instruments, they're yeah. really playing. And I thought it was smart to cast a real professional drummer, Nate Lang, as Tanner, because even though he, I will say the only con to this movie, he's very expressive with his face, a little too much sometimes. When he's in the background. Yeah, he's yeah. like looking at stuff, he's like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> I'm like, he's like, let me look at that chart again. <laughs> yeah, he's like, okay, alright, he's a little, little too and much. Fletcher says, like, my, uh, that Andrew's off, he's like, yeah, he's off tempo. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he like scratches his chin, it's like, he, he goes a little too far, you can tell he's not an actor, he's a drummer. And so I thought it was smart to actually cast, even as the alternate and the the first core player to play, to cast an actual drummer. It made sense. Yeah, because like a rule for being an extra is like you don't want to distract yeah. from the person <laughs> yeah. that's the lead in the shot. <laughs> he did, and, but he did but he's do great. He's he great. did do a good job in a couple of his dialogue scenes with Miles Teller, especially the folder scene. He did for a drummer. He did an excellent job in those scenes. The folder scene is awesome at the first big competition they have. Now the basic story Fletcher recounts about Charlie Parker, the famous one where he says that. The, the other musician threw a symbol at his head, and obviously, according to Fletcher, that's how Charlie Parker became Charlie Parker. He was so embarrassed on stage that he spent a year training and became who he was. There'd be no bird without Charlie Parker. Ask me what I named my boat. <laughs> bird! <laughs> he's, not a, he's, not a, he's not a man. He's a god. That's it. We're going to Naples. <laughs> we always have to reference Tom to Mr. Ripley. So, even though this story is true... His description is inaccurate, according to historians. Drummer Joe Jones did in three did indeed throw a symbol in response to Parker's playing, but he did not throw it as a physical attack on Parker. He simply threw it to the stage floor as a signal that Parker should leave the stage. Jazz historians have also said that this was not a response to poor performance, as Fletcher says in the film, but because the older musicians disapproved of the fast improvisations Parker was playing that became his trademark. So, you know, he changed up a little bit for the movie for a better story for the better plot and better story arcs. It works better, and I have I have to say, I do know from speaking with some jazz musicians and then seeing online musicians... They aren't really fans of this movie, ironically, even though it's probably the most famous movie about jazz made in the last 50 years. I think that it works, and the movie isn't... I mean, it's not... A lot of them say that, you know, playing jazz isn't just about trying really hard and, like, practicing till your hands bleed. There's a lot more to it, but it's just, this is a film, and it's a fictional story, and everything works for the movie. It's not completely accurate, obviously, and you know there aren't really teachers like throwing chairs at students and stuff. But this is a this is a this is a fictional narrative, and Fletcher works because he's an incredible antagonist and he's a horrible villain. And like we all often say, movies are movies are only as good as their villains. And Fletcher really ex makes this movie incredible. He drives that conflict and he raises the stakes for Andrew. So it's okay to exaggerate the teacher, the dominating teacher, for something like this. And it's okay for if it's not completely accurate to jazz playing or the life of a jazz musician. But I have also heard accounts of, you know, there are very intense teachers. So that's true. But I think that maybe some jazz musicians might read too much into this film and don't enjoy it. True. I get that. I've heard the same thing from jazz musicians. And we have a jazz drummer that's a friend. We did it. A La La Land Whiplash episode yeah. in 2021, and he guested on the episode. And he's like, my hands have never bled from drumming before, but mm -hmm. he's been playing his whole life. Obviously, Andrew would have been playing his whole life, so we would have had all the calluses built up and yeah. everything. But blisters do happen for sure. It's showing the extreme stakes. Yeah, How, yeah but and there's a component to this film with Fletcher that's unrealistic. Obviously, the intense emotional and physical abuse in this film. You know, I think a lot of people are turned off by this movie because of that. 
And it's effective in storytelling because, like you said, it's a great antagonist, a great villain, as well as you feel trapped like Andrew. You feel trapped like in his chair because whenever he's getting berated, he's just frozen in his drums in his drum kit. He's just sitting there. And Giselle, Giselle does a great job putting you in the shoes of Andrew. Like you're taking that abuse from Fletcher the whole time. It's it's hard to watch, which is gr- but it's great for storytelling because with Whiplash, if Fletcher is a nice guy. Whiplash isn't a masterpiece. Or even if he was just like, even if he was still an asshole, but not as extreme as he is, it wouldn't work as well. It's not a, a perfect yeah. movie, yeah. but it makes it a perfect movie. It's, they're not promoting it. Yeah. That's, that's the irony with movies like this or Joker. It's so intense. It's so visceral that people get put off by it or they feel intense emotions. But you watch a superhero movie where there's the whole movie's physical abuse, yeah. but the stakes are not there. It doesn't feel real. So I, Or John Wick, ironically, like he shoots 30 f- people in the face in the first act. And no one bats an eye, but someone gets verbally abused in Whiplash, and people are put off by it. But that's because it feels so real. Yeah, it's the tone of it. This And this movie is actually it, – it is a little different from anything Chazelle has done. Most notably, it was shot digitally. So all of his films since Whiplash have been shot on film by Linus Sandgren, who is, in my opinion, one of the best working cinematographers right now. He, people don't really know his name. But he had a different DP for this one. He had a, a veteran DP. They've never worked together since. They shot it digitally, so that, that probably accounts for how fast the turnaround was. I'm guessing they did that because they wanted to get the Sundance submission in time. So they shot it digitally, edited it ASAP, and sent it out within 10 weeks. Plus they only had $3.3 million. Yeah, exactly. So it cost yeah. a lot of money. But it, but it does have a lot of his trademarks in terms of things he likes to do with the camera. And a lot of uh, – you get a ton of the uh, – the whip pants. Yeah. We get a lot of great editing. So that's where he takes and goes left, right. Yeah. Obviously in La La Land, the most one of the most famous shots is when they're in the club and he's playing piano and Emma Stone's dancing. So Mia yes. and Sebastian back forth, back forth. Exactly. In this movie a couple times. We get a lot of great fast push-ins, and he's done that a lot since he like famous like most notably in this film, the final shot of that super fast push in of Andrew playing. It goes from pretty wide all the way up to him and then cuts to black. We see that in all of his films now. Those are two of his big trademarks that he likes to do. But now is one of his major trademarks that he likes to shoot on film. And because he can afford it and he has the time and he has the crew to be able to handle it properly. This film, it doesn't look quite like his film shot by Linus because Linus is a fucking genius. But it still is incredibly stylized, very well shot, and remarkably edited. This movie is so well edited it deserved the Oscar win, and not just for the final performance, which is fantastic. Like it won for that final performance, but the entire editing all around, we get these really great little shots. And Chazelle and the team do a great job of putting into the perspective of Andrew, especially like he's sitting in the studio band, he's kind of nervous, and he's looking around. You you get that he sees the other drummer talking to his girlfriend, and we get to we get a, like a close up of them. We're getting his perspective, Andrew's perspective, looking at things. We get all these random little insert shots with kind of deep focus, and they're really inserting you into the mind of this person. So they did a, they did a wonderful job of cutting together these little moments within scenes that normally you wouldn't see this kind of imagery. I think the the editing is really dynamic and really powerful, and then the lighting and cinematography is very strong. So if you think when you watch this film, there's a balance between there's a contrast between warm tones of lighting. And then cool, dark, cold to- uh, tones of lighting. So all of the cold lighting is around the world. So we get lots of greens. And we get lots of cool blues for lights. 
and this is generally exteriors and walk around his apartment build his his dorm building things like that but what are the warm looking areas of this film the movie theater is warmly lit and then the studio band basement is warmly lit so these places of like great art and passion for mile for andrew and connection to things he loves whether it be movies with his dad or playing music all those locations are lit with warm lighting whereas everything else is green and blue and very cold it sucks the life out of andrew whenever he's not in these areas and there's it's so warm and it looks like like sort of like you're on a drum kit the light reflecting mm. off your symbol so it feels like that gold aura around the drum kit in general plus like on stage every time it's very warmly yes lit as true well. yeah and obviously some more trademarks the final shot close-up on eyes of the two main characters which obviously gets here i would say the pushing into the trumpet while it's playing yeah obviously in, in this one in babylon, yeah, I did La that in La babylon for yeah. sure but um, I think that he does like a great Scorsese impression in this movie too with the insert shots. It's really effective. I would say my favorite shot in terms of being in Andrew's perspective or feeling like you're inside of his shoes is when he's practicing, I think, for the second montage or third montage and his hands are bleeding profusely and he gets the bucket of ice going. Yeah. And so he shoves his bloody hand inside the bucket of ice, but Damien Chazelle gets the shot sideways. It's a really cool look, but I always look at it the perspective of like, Andrew's so tired, he's like lumped over in the side of his drum kit. So like from his point of view, it looks like his hand's going in sideways. Mm -hmm. So I think things like that make you feel like you're that character, like you're exhausted, you're falling over your drum kit, you're dunking your hands in ice. And it's a really interesting shot, I think, for being in his perspective. That's a great insert shot. And they do a great job with the sound design too. They take away sound a few times in the film, and they bring in really kind of like not so much scary, but uh, piercing sound designs. They'll they'll make a tone, and it'll sh they'll showcase Andrew's disillusionment, his exhaustion, things like that. And they do that with the sound design as well. They'll take away the sound effects and sound design of rooms, and just put us like in his headspace for a moment. Damien Giselle really obliterated a specific genre of movie too a specific type of usually drama and that's the musical prodigy genre and i love when filmmakers and storytellers just flip a specific thing on its head and do something you've never seen before where this movie just obliterates the prodigy genre usually the prodigy they're so talented you know they're talented but with whiplash as an audience member, we don't specifically really know whether or not Andrew is the best drummer in the movie. We don't know if he's the best in his class. We know he's obviously very good. But from our perspective watching, and even from Andrew's perspective, we feel so much self-doubt that Fletcher puts into us because the entire film, Fletcher is breaking Andrew down every chance he gets all the way to the final sequence when they both destroy each other to achieve their goals, which they do achieve. So I think, you know, when we have a musical prodigy film, they're kind of cliche at times. None of them really stand out so well except for Whiplash. I've never felt so much doubt in a character or with a character like I have in Whiplash. And when it comes to achieving goals, they both achieve what they want. But it takes destroying each other, almost destroying each other to get there. By the end of the film, Andrew becomes one of the greats. The best drum solo ever. And also Fletcher gets to create his own Charlie Parker. He got to mold the next Charlie Parker of this generation. So they both got what they want in the end, but it took everything from them. And there's a, a great scene that actually helps illustrate that that doesn't involve Fletcher. And it's the scene when Andrew goes home to visit his family. And no one in his family really gets drumming. They don't really understand that being in this band is a huge deal in the jazz world and in, in the world of 
this kind of art form. He says he's, I'm in the best band in yeah. America. And yeah. Like, oh, that's that's nice. Do you How's get anything a job for it? And then a lot that they're showing in that scene how many people don't understand it in terms of you know scoring a touchdown, a milestone like that, or winning a game that milestone. They don't understand how that relates to something like playing jazz drums, where what he's doing is like playing, scoring a touchdown in the NCAA World Champ the Championship game, and it's difficult for Andrew to make people understand what he's doing and how good he is, or at how good he thinks he is. You know, he he definitely is great because he's at Schaefer, the best school in the country for this. He's and he made the studio band of the best instructor in the school, so. He's in, like, in, in a way, he says that joke about his his brother who scored a touchdown. He's like, it's D3. Well, they're not brothers. I mean brothers, cousins. Think, yeah, cousin. It's D3. Yeah, it's Division 3. <laughs> <It's> Division 3. <laughs> and so... Come and play for us. Four words you'll never hear from the NFL. Yeah, that's a great back and forth, but it illustrates that uh, maybe a lot of people don't understand how talented you have to be and how much work goes into making a band like this. There's a... A belief that Whiplash promotes a misleading idea of genius, now Forrest Wickman, of Slate. Slate. Said the film distorted and adding that, distorted jazz, adding that in all likelihood, Fletcher isn't making a Charlie Parker. He's making the kind of musician that would throw a cymbal at him. And the New Yorker, Richard Brody, said Whiplash honors neither jazz nor cinema. To them, I say it's just a movie. And I think. Kind of like how La La Land, you know, jazz is dying. It's brought up in this film how jazz is dying as well. And it's between John Lennon, Legend's character, and Gosling's character, Sebastian, where Sebastian wants to keep film, keep jazz alive. How do you keep jazz alive? you got to change it up a little bit to keep it hip, to keep it modern, to keep it fresh. This movie brought jazz probably to so many people's ears and eyes that probably never discovered jazz before. So in a way... If anything, it's promoting jazz and building jazz up in I, a new way. I bet a lot of musicians were inspired to be musicians because of this movie. 100%. Or maybe even to pursue it more seriously because of a movie like this. Or just someone listening to jazz casually now. Yeah, but just, good jazz. It's just a movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, relax, guys. This is not a jazz documentary. That's the That's thing. what I'm saying about jazz fans aren't fans of this movie. No, but I'm not, they're not jazz fans. They're just film Critics. They sound like they know about but the, jazz. The thing with this movie, like it's, that. That, it's one time with Joker or something like that, where the, it feels so real because it's so well made. It's crafted brilliantly, directed insanely well. Incredible characters. You feel like you're these people. And because of that, people take things really powerfully in terms of interpreting things from it, which you should in a good way. But also at the end of the day, it's also just a movie. I think that this movie, it's more of a, it's a character study than it is a, a musician, musical movie. I mean, it is about musicians, but it is a character study. You know, Andrew and Fletcher, it's it's about them. It's about their relationship. It's about them as individuals. It's about pushing yourself towards an obsession and committing yourself entirely to something and taking that risk in life of, I want to sacrifice everything to achieve one special thing. And is it worth taking that risk? And can I achieve that risk? And, you know... Uh, some uh, Many of his films are about obsession. So you have Andrew and Fletcher obsessed about music in this film. And then you have... I wouldn't say that Gosling and Stone's characters are obsessed quite a, as much as these two are, obviously. But what are you talking about? Not, okay. Sebastian is obsessed All with right, jazz. Obsessed are you jazz. kidding okay. me? He's he with... looks like he's from 1960s. 
He has the stool right. that one guy took a fart on. <laughs> that's true. That's true. All right. All right. They're obsessed. Neil Armstrong obsessed yeah. with getting to the moon. And then Babylon, it's not so much about obsession, but more about uh, the enticement of the world of Hollywood. And so I wouldn't say Babylon doesn't have the obsession um, themes in it, but the other three films do. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. The You're right. Sebastian is obsessed Sebastian, with jazz, and me is obsessed with being a star. Start yeah. well, being an actor as well. So I, I think obsession. Well, is I think one there's of the a difference between obsession movies. and then really wanting it. I wouldn't say that me is obsessed. The whole point of them breaking up is because they have to be obsessed with their goals. True. At the end, they have so to commit to their goals. They're, they're obsessed of being in the beginning. Then, yeah. be, well, that's the point of the movie. Obviously, I think is yeah. sometimes you have to let someone go that you love for obsession for your goals. Yeah. But this is an episode about La La Land. But it's obsession. Not. Is one of the best traits you can have in a lead character or lead characters in the film, and both characters have obsessions. I wouldn't say they're with music; they're more specifically Andrew's obsession is becoming the greatest drummer alive, one of the greats, the great of the century. Then Fletcher's obsession isn't with jazz; it's with create, it's with creating the next Charlie Parker. He knows he's not a, an all-time great musician, but like when he loses his job at Schaefer, he tells Andrew, even though he knows it was Andrew that ratted on him. People don't, didn't understand what I was doing at Schaefer. I wasn't there to conduct. Any idiot can conduct. This is his quote, it's not mine. <laughs> Any idiot can conduct. I was there to push people beyond their boundaries, beyond their limits. I was there to create the next Charlie Parker. And I tried. I didn't achieve it, which he's still digging Andrew at this point. All the way, everything they've been through, the sequence when you know my, Andrew finds him at the jazz club playing piano, even to his face, he says, I'd never made a Charlie Parker. And you can see Andrew like, that motherfucker still won't let this go. He's still pushing me because in a way he is. I never found a Charlie Parker, but, but I tried. Well, he says it right to Andrew, who you could say was maybe one of his best students ever. I think that Fletcher did see a lot in Andrew. There's there's so many ways in which Fletcher tested and fucked with Andrew in a lot of ways. And it's I love the opening scene of Andrew just practicing in that random studio room. And then Fletcher walking in. He's like, do you know who I am? Yes, sir. Then why'd you stop playing? And then he starts playing. And then did I ask you to start playing again? <laughs> I ask you why you stopped playing. And you start playing like a monkey. You wind up <laughs> like, like a, like a wind up monkey. monkey. <laughs> and then, so then he tests Andrew a few times doing the double time, a couple other things. And then when Andrew's incredibly focused, he hears the door close and Fletcher leaves. Then he comes back and he's like, oh, maybe he's coming back to, to do compliment me. But no, he, oh, oopsie daisy, I forgot my jacket. So even in that first scene, you see that Fletcher, he does not, something that Fletcher never does is he never shows admiration and he never says anything positive about anyone's playing whatsoever. It's always pushing or rejecting. So there's no validation for his musicians in any way, shape, or form. Nothing's ever good enough until it's perfect. And there's that's I think that's an example of what you were talking about earlier with other films about a prodigy or a great great artist or whatever, they'll receive validation either from success or from other characters. But in this film, Andrew doesn't receive a single iota of validation from Fletcher at all except for you're in the part. But it's not like a congrats, congratulations, you're in the part. It's like you finally earned the part. Great. After 10 hours yeah, of drumming. You finally fucking did it, Andrew. Great job. All right, we're playing tomorrow. No, he doesn't even say great. No, job. no, I'm just saying that <laughs> yeah. tone. That's yeah, the tone. Yeah, yeah. It's like he. It's like it's not even a like congratulations. It's like you got the part. Even when you're perfect. Yeah. All right. You got. Because when he when you're doing well, he doesn't even acknowledge your existence, no. Fletcher. Like you can see him like a like a 
alliance stalking his prey. He's just going back and forth to the different parts of the orchestra. He's going to percussion. He's going to the brass. He's going to the strings. He's like, all right, who's messing up right now? Who's he, messing he, up right now? But if, yeah. if he doesn't look at you, you're doing a good job. He constantly is seeking the weakness of the, the band, and that's a good point because there's multiple times when, especially in that first performance when he's worried about Andrew at first because he took over for Tanner, who lost the folder, <laughs> we'll get to... At first, he's hyper-focused on Andrew and his playing for the first minute of the song. And then he's like, okay, Andrew's doing fine. So then he he begins moving across the stage looking for who who needs my help, my guidance right now. So he does do that as a, compo- as a conductor, constantly seeking the weakest links of his band. Yeah, and the thing with a- uh, admiration, Andrew doesn't even really receive it from his father. The only family he has left, and he doesn't have any friends his girlfriend, Nicole, he breaks up with halfway through the movie. They haven't even been dating that long, maybe a semester of school by the time he breaks up with her. But he doesn't even get really anything from his father, not until the very end of the movie, which is one of my favorite shots. But even when Andrew's, you know, his his dad doesn't understand even him. He even says to him, I don't understand you because he eats around the raisin nuts and the popcorn. That's just a small metaphor of how different they really are in terms of Andrew wants his father to see him the way that Andrew wants him to see him. So he wants his father he wants his father to see him as this great musician. But his father doesn't understand music. His father's a, a writer, a decently successful a teacher, a writer, but he doesn't know anything about music. That's why I think Fletcher does a great job for his character in terms of knowing how to push people's buttons and destroy them emotionally. He always asks personal questions, like he takes Andrew to the side before his first test in studio band, his first days, like takes him to the hallway. Like we see some glimpses of Fletcher being cool and nice. He's Very like, congenial. He's like, hey man, yeah, just have fun out there. Just relax. It's the key, you know. Cool, man. Awesome. Yeah, we're gonna have fun. Um, your parents are musicians, but he's asking about his personal life. That's why he always attacks everyone personally. He attacks Andrew for his mom leaving him and his dad being a, a failure. He attacks Tanner for being homosexual multiple times. He attacks Flannery uh, Connolly for being Irish and calling him a leprechaun. So he he finds the thing that maybe is the easiest to attack you with and goes after it emotionally and physically eventually with Andrew. But with Andrew, he never even gets admiration from his father. His father even kind of doesn't defend him. Like that family dinner with the cousins, he's going back and forth with the college kids and then with, I'm assuming, his, his, is his uncle. Or maybe these are just friends or close friends. I think it might family. be uncle cousins is my it guess. could be familial. Yeah. I can't remember. But either way, the dynamic fits for either cousins or family friends. Yeah. His father doesn't even stand up for him when they're kind of going after Andrew. And what does his father do? He actually adds to taking away, to, to bringing down Andrew. He says, to end that scene, his father says to him, have you heard from Lincoln Center yet? And that's basically a dig at Andrew because Andrew's life goal is to be one of the greats and also to be a drummer for Lincoln Center, which is one of the most prestigious places to play music in the country. And so no one's supporting Andrew except for really you could say his girlfriend, but she doesn't understand him either. No one really understands Andrew until the final scene of the movie. Yeah, and he doesn't have any friends. He avoids people at school. And he also has that line... They ask, do you have any friends? And he goes, I don't see the point in them. And so he self-isolates himself to be just too obsessed and to become completely immersed in drumming. And Fletcher understands that. And Fletcher constantly tests him and pushes him from the start. So when he, he enters the first band class and he's looking for a new player, he asks them, and he goes from instrument to instrument, having them test out a couple of bars, and he says no to everybody. Then he says, okay, drummer... Um, come here, and then it's actually, he means Andrew, and Andrew 
He invites Andrew to his class the next morning at 6 a.m. He says, be, be 16, 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Andrew wakes up a few minutes late. He panics, and he's running, running to the class, and he gets there, and it's empty. And then he realizes that class is actually scheduled for 9 a.m. Not class, but band practice is scheduled for 9 a.m. So he has to sit there for three hours. So right from the get-go, Fletcher is pushing him and testing his will and testing his resolve by being, all right, I'm going to have you come three hours early and see how you'll do in that class, um, sitting there for that long, waking up that early. And also, like you said, learning about his life, then tearing him down, throwing the chair at him. Um, when he does get the core part, it's short-lived as a reward because Fletcher immediately brings Connolly on, who they both know is not nearly as talented as Andrew, but he brings Connolly on just to fuck with Andrew, just to push him, just to frustrate him. And what's he do? He specifically gives Connolly specific music, and he got all day to practice yeah. it, and then at the end of Studio Band, he says, all right, you guys just compete for the part. Everyone yeah. has an equal chance here. And then Andrew's like, I haven't even looked at the music yet. And Connolly's been practicing all goddamn day. Obviously, Connolly's gonna beat him in at these charts, but he loses at the charts. He's like, "Are you kidding me? This is my part. That's that shit wins over me because, like you said, Fletcher's pushing him." Yeah, and in, in a way, he is. He says later on in the film that he was using Connolly as basically a tool to to push Andrew, because I think he saw immediately the will, the resolve, the drive, and the talent in Andrew. But he had to mold it. And they, they use the character of Sean as an example as a, another Andrew. Sean so, Casey? So Sean Casey, the trumpet player that Fletcher had uh, years ago, like six years ago, who was not doing well. But then they put him in studio band. Fletcher pushed him and molded him and drove him. And eventually he graduated and he was playing for – what was he playing for, trumpet for? Some great band, an institution. So he was extremely – extremely respected trumpet player and he became the best version of himself through Fletcher. And so we're however however yeah so he we're did seeing commit suicide. Yeah, so we're saying the same kind of thing. Oh, maybe this is what's maybe this is what Fletcher's doing for Andrew. Maybe he's just really pushing him and to succeed and Fletcher says that Sean died in a car accident, a terrible tragedy. Um so then Andrew I think gets a little confidence in like, okay, maybe Fletcher's pushing me to this to be great and you know, this musician he achieved greatness through Fletcher, so maybe this can happen to me. But then we learn the flip side of that in the second half of the film that Sean actually committed suicide, that he was driven to intense anxiety and depression through the abuse emotionally and physically of Fletcher on him as a student, and he never was able to escape that, and it drove him to kill himself. And so then we see the the, the stakes and the risks here involved of taking on this relationship with Fletcher of letting him be your teacher, being your trainer, and in letting him abuse you, you could lead yourself to, to ruin or you could achieve greatness. And so then that adds new stakes to Andrew's situation, learning that true outcome to Sean's life. Now, has every student received this kind of abuse from Fletcher? And I think the answer is yes and no. I believe every student that Fletcher comes across, if he sees something in them and obviously invites them to studio band to see what they got – he obviously berates everyone individually. You can tell the environment. As soon as Andrew's there for the first time in Studio B, everyone's obviously tuning their instruments immediately. As soon as the door opens, they're silent. And they are looking down in fear and terror in a lot of ways because you can tell that 
Fletcher has gone after every single person in this room individually at different moments. And obviously, he breaks them in on the first day like he breaks Andrew in on the first day. Specifically, probably the hardest ever he's probably gone after a student could probably be Andrew, maybe because he sees the most potential there. But you can tell every student has faced this abuse. However, Andrew faces the most abuse because he can take the most abuse and he pushes himself further than anybody that Fletcher's ever had for a student because so that's why Andrew gets the most you've ever seen probably in this classroom from anyone from Fletcher because he'll go farther than anybody he has more drive than anybody but that's what it takes for him to become great that doesn't mean that's how you achieve greatness. You don't have to be physically abused or emotionally abused to become great. But for this character, for these two characters, for this movie, it works really well. And that's why Andrew, I think, receives more abuse than anybody. That's a great point because in Andrew's first scene in the studio band, he's not the first person Fletcher goes after. It's the out-of-tune brass player. And the brass player, upon being berated by Fletcher, leaves. Breaks down, cries, and leaves. And, you know, he gives up. And he wasn't even out-of-tune. Yeah, he wasn't even out-of-tune. So... Andrew's able to come, come constantly withstand the abuse and keep pushing himself and to keep taking it the next day. Tanner is another example of someone who threw out all that abuse. He couldn't take it anymore, so he became pre-med, changed, completely changed his major and his studies. So the other characters, I think you're, you, that, that's a great point. Andrew goes through the extremes with Fletcher because he keeps being able to push himself to walk in the next day and take it again, whereas every other student especially in the past, has probably just given up after one or two interactions with Fletcher. Andrew keeps taking it. Or you become good enough where you just kind of disappear in the band, where you, you're fine, but you don't want to get pushed anymore. Yeah. You just want to stay there and graduate and finish up and maybe get an okay job playing music somewhere, but you're not going to become one of the greats because you're not being pushed like Fletcher is pushing Andrew. And it comes to that concept of talent versus drive. You know That is in every kind of art form or physicality, or whether it's sports or or filmmaking, or writing, or anything like that. There's a point where there's a, a point where a talent can take you, then there's a point where drive can take you. But then when you have a character or somebody who's got both, you become one of the greats, and you can become one of the greats. But how do you get that drive? And of course, like we said earlier, this isn't the only way to become greats, but it works goddamn well in this movie. It really does. Absolutely. How about we take a moment, a few moments, we'll head to our intermission and do superlatives, and then we'll come back to Whiplash. But let's start with superlative, superlatives. How's that sound? You're doing great, man. <laughs> Shut up. All right. <laughs> superlative number one, Anthony. Who is the MVP of the film Whiplash? It's going to be Damien Chazelle. Why? I mean, your film doesn't get five Oscar nominations by accident. And it's just perfectly directed, executed. He's great with actors. He pulls incredible performances. Nobody saw this coming from J.K. Simmons, and he had been acting for 20 years. You know what I mean? This changed his career. So all around, from start to finish, this film, its execution is just beat for beat, flat out perfect. It's one of the best debuts ever, and that's why I also give the MVP award to Damien Chazelle as well. He's just one of the... Hottest filmmakers in Hollywood right so now. Hot right only now. four films under his belt, which is astounding what he's been able to achieve. He's going to go down as one of the best ever by the end of his career. He's already in those early conversations of one of the great directors of this generation. And this is obviously you see everything about his style being developed here, but it's in its rawest form, which for bands or musicians, for filmmakers, sometimes that early film 
is their best and still holds the test of time. This is going to be maybe his most timeless movie ever. And it's phenomenal. But you see the rawness. You see the skill in storytelling, the sharpness, the visceral quality that he has in his movies, plus adding such great music. And I think bringing jazz to people who never heard it before really took it seriously before with a movie like Whiplash. 100%. What's the best scene in the movie? The best scene is the first studio band practice for Andrew. All right. That's that's the scene for me. That's it. So basically the short film scene. I think the best scene is the final show, the final concert between Fletcher going after Andrew and Andrew going after Fletcher. And I think it's one of the best endings in a movie this century. I love the ending. I think the ending really makes this a masterpiece, and I can't wait to talk about it. Gives me goosebumps. What's the best shot in Whiplash? The final shot. It's the fast push in on Andrew as he's finishing the song with the flashing lights, and it's just fantastic. I like how it cuts to black before he gets to hit the drum kit, too. He's about to hit the drum kit, and it cuts to black. But you hear it. You hear the music, you hear him, he's going down with the stick, cuts to black, then you hear the music drumming. I think it's an interesting artistic choice. I'm trying to think of, because it's the push in, Yeah, and he, isn't he going crazy on the drums? But then it's, he's about to do it again. Oh, the final one. So gotcha. the final one, and Damien Giselle cuts before he hits gotcha. the drum kit. Gotcha, I know what you mean now. But you hear it, yeah. he continues the audio. It's a really cool decision. I what about it. you? What's your favorite shot? My favorite shot? is during the final performance, the, the final show when Andrew's going ham and he's in the middle of the greatest solo ever put on stage before. <laughs> and Andrew's dad, obviously before that happened, what happens is Fletcher tricks Andrew, gives him the wrong music, doesn't tell him what we're playing, to humiliate him and ruin him and tarnish his career forever as a musician because these people won't forget. And then Andrew goes backstage and his father obviously knows what happened. He goes to hug him and show support for Andrew because he loves him so much. And then Andrew, instead of going with his father, he leaves and goes and puts on the solo. Mid-solo, the camera cuts to his father, who's backstage looking through half-open doors. And his father just has this look of astonishment, of genuine disbelief of how of what he's watching, this greatness. He finally sees Andrew, like I said earlier, the way Andrew's always wanted his father to see him as the greatest drummer alive. All of this work from practicing from music kid, all the work he's done in school, and now the trauma he's been going through at Schaefer. This is what it's all been for. And someone who doesn't even understand music, who doesn't understand jazz, is having a moment of extreme enjoyment or just, just disbelief of what he's watching. He's seeing a master at work. And no matter what it is, when you witness mastery of something, you understand it and you get it even if you're not familiar with that art form. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the actually the most important shot of the film. It, sh- it shows the connection, the finally the connection of the father and son. Yeah. He I gets it now. Agree. He yeah. gets everything now, and it's it's a beautiful shot. And the guy who plays his father, do you know who he's, who he's in? He's in the a, villain of Aliens. He's in Aliens. He plays Burke in Aliens. Yeah. I've always been like, where do I know this guy from? And I looked it up last time. It's fucking Burke from yeah, Aliens. the guy from Aliens. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next oh one's God. a no-brainer. Who's the best actor in Whiplash? It's J.K., JK is amazing. He's astounding. He makes the movie. He steals every scene. He's the driving force of conflict. It's just a sight to behold. It's one of the best supporting actor performances of the century so far. Yeah, when you think of best just acting in general of the century, obviously so many roles stand out to you in your mind if you just make a list, but JK Simmons is Terrence Fletcher has to be on there. Has to be on that list. 47 wins Damn. for this role. 47 Holy acting fuck. wins for this role. Insane. No, Where does he keep all those trophies? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get a whole fucking house for all those trophies. It's like Happy Gilmore. He's like, I think I'm gonna make that my trophy room. <laughs> <laughs> 
a little hockey player on there. <laughs> now, Anthony, what's the best line in Whiplash? <laughs> this is not your boyfriend's dick. Don't come early. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was uh, really the first sign that Andrew saw of Fletcher's darkness and his extreme extremity, his extreme nature. That was the first, like, horrible line that he said. Yeah. And it was shocking for Andrew. He was like, what did he just say? There's only one improvised line in this movie, too, surprisingly, for all the things that Fletcher says. But it was all written in script. I can't remember. I think it was one of the ones where he calls him a pansy something. When Andrew, he calls Andrew like a pansy something as he's leaving the stage for one of the performances. I think the first one. I thought the mini-me line was improvised. (laughs) It's it's all in the script, man. It's all written in the script. I can still see you, (laughs) mini-me. My best line of the movie is, not quite my tempo. Not quite my tempo. It's just one of the lines he consistently says throughout the film to berate somebody and push them further. Not not quite my tempo. Because the not quite my tempo thing, they're probably in tempo. Andrew's probably in tempo in that opening scene of the first studio band scene. He's probably in tempo. I don't think he is. I, I can't tell. But the thing is, it doesn't matter if he's rushing or dragging. Because no matter what, this was going to happen. He was going to berate him for rushing or dragging or not being on his tempo no matter what. I think it's that Fletcher's looking for perfection, and he's not perfect yet. But he was going to do this. This was going to happen the first, yeah, yeah, yeah. His first yeah. time in band. But I don't think that he's – I don't think he's playing it perfectly. I'll, well, I think he's playing awesome. it – I think he's playing it as close to perfect as any other drummer can do it, but Fletcher's not looking for that. Fletcher's looking for perfection, like perfect. And Fletcher has the ear to be able to, dis- to discern the micro difference between what Andrew's doing and what he is really written on the page. He does have a great ear, Fletcher, because I love the figuring out who the out-of-tune player is. And he goes through everyone. Oh, not here. Oh, it's not here either. Oh, wait. He's here. Oh, my ears are fine. My ears are fine. And then he goes after the trombone players and uh, figures oh, here out which he one. is. But he knows who it was, and he berates the guy who cries and leaves, even though he's out of tune. Because he saw he's the weakest. Yeah, he's yeah. the weakest one. But he didn't know he was out of tune, which is just as bad as being out of tune. I've been carrying your ass for years. For too long. He's mean. He's a mean guy, Fletcher. Now, how about we head into our intermission and have some fun? Oh, yeah. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. It's 2024, and we have the most patronage ever. We're so grateful for all of our supporters. It helps us do the show full-time. We couldn't do it without our patrons, and we're trying to get as many as possible because we're giving you awesome perks you get free episodes every week every patron has access to the weekly chat which is exclusively on patreon as well as a bonus episode every week plus patreons at the minimum tier of five dollars get access to the ad free experience of the show many of you understand that we have to put ads on the show because it's how we pay the bills essentially that in patreon but if you don't want to listen to the ads All you got to do is be minimum $5 on Patreon, and you'll get every episode ad-free, which you can also link on Spotify and listen on Spotify, which is a great perk in addition to being a patron of the show. We have $10 tier. You get access to the Discord. $25. You get a custom episode. You pick a topic. Anthony, you can pick a topic if you become a $25 patron. We'll do an episode for you. We'll cover whatever whatever international film from 1962 you want us to do. Thanks, man. We will cover it. $100 is the granddaddy package. You become an executive producer of the show at the end of main episodes. You get a private watch party, free merch. Anthony will make you a dinner, 
of whatever meal you want. I'll just, ship it to you. Just kidding. He won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how are we going to do that? What if they live internationally? <laughs> <All right. laughs> He's going to send you some meatballs. Going to have to get some dry ice for this. <laughs> <laughs> some ice packs will do fine. Yeah. Dry ice. Dry ice. That's so old school. But anyways, it's the ultimate package. But Patreon's the reason we can do this show full time. Without your support, we can't do it. So thank you so much to all of our patrons around the world. The link is in the description of this episode. It's clickable. clickable very e- it's easy very to clickable. access. To also support the show, you can leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We love to read them on Apple Podcasts. They're so fun. I'll get to one in just a minute. But the stars and the five-star ratings help us get seen on the platforms by new people. I know you hear this on every show. Leave those five-star reviews. But that's because it actually makes a fucking difference. And we appreciate everyone who actually has done it before. You mean the world to us. So don't you other listeners who haven't done it. But, I mean, you can just scroll up right now. Just hit the five stars. And make Anthony very please, happy. Please, please hit the five please, stars. Please, Lou. Please let us keep the place, Lou. You don't know where I've been, Lou. You don't know where I've been. This episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10, you know it, at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. MoviePosters.com has a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, they have all the Chazelle hits. Whiplash, La La Land, Babylon, First Man. Want to get some Chazelle posters? You got to go to MoviePosters.com. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. They make a great gift for the movie lover in your life, as well as a gift for yourself to help show the passion you have for cinema or television. So again, head on over to MoviePosters.com for all of your poster needs. And be sure to use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get Tempson off your order right now. Let's get into the intermission and begin with the movie quotes competition. Are you ready, Anthony? Ready. Here we go. Look at this. Look at what they make you give. Born identity. Yes. The born identity. Clive Owen. Clive Owen. The professor. Do you get headaches? I, I get terrible I get headaches. headaches. <laughs> All right, here's my course. Two people talking. When they come out, does it hurt? Every time. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's X-Men. Oh, yeah, it's X-Men. The first one. <laughs> Did you say Sex-Men? No, I said X-Men. I think people just hear what they want to hear. <laughs> you were like, it's Sex-Men. <laughs> it's X. You blended the words. Men. <laughs> good quote. Good line. I was thinking about that the other day with with Hugh Jackman and being Wolverine Logan. Like, if the, whoever has to, they'll obviously recast and redo Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoever gets recast, they're gonna have to go up an uphill battle because people will not accept it. I think. I think a lot of people will enjoy it, and I'll, I'm excited for whoever gets cast when they do it. But for for someone to play a superhero for so long and be the only live action version of it for two decades, holy crap, that's so rare. Yeah, I mean. They get a, if they do Wolverine, they have to do a completely different take. I think they should just go short, stocky, just like belligerent, like massive, just like yeah. arrogant. As I don't hell. understand the Daniel Radcliffe desire. People want the, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, fans are dying to have Radcliffe play Wolverine. I mean, he, he I think he'd be pretty good. He's got he's got the hair. He can do the beard and everything. And I mean, he's I, shorter. I, but I love Radcliffe, but I don't see him as Wolverine. I don't see him as scary. I could see it if he got. He just has to get way bigger because he's just always a he's a very lean guy. Yeah. He's in shape, but like he, I feel like if he just got huge, 
I want I want to see that Wolverine short and stocky. I don't know. I think yeah. I think Wolverine should be like more bearish, and I don't think I don't see Radcliffe as that that intimidating. Whoa, I I could see him doing it. I could see that. I don't I don't see him playing Wolverine. I don't see it. I don't understand the fan casting. I he's, love him. He's just Harry Potter forever. <laughs> yeah, I think that's to it. There's an element to it. You just want to see him do a Patronus charm. Exactly. Moving exactly. on to guess this movie release year, Anthony. Sweeney Todd. 2008. 2007. Damn. That's an old movie. Damn. 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 What year did X-Men come out? Hmm. So this is before Spidey, which was 02. I'm going to say 2000. 2000's correct. Let's go. Two for two, Two man. for two. Two for two. Movie pop quiz time, Anthony. What musician is The Runaways about? Um, what's their fucking name? The Runaways is about... <laughs> Shit, what's her name? I love I know, I know. rock and roll, <laughs> but another time in the jukebox, baby. Um... I love rock and roll. Can't remember her name. I don't know. Kristen Stewart plays her. If that helps. No, I know. I know the movie. So she was a guitarist and lead singer of a band. I know. I know this. Joan Jett. Joan Jett. Thank you, Joan Jett. Good. Good one. Stump me. Good question. We got Anthony. We got him. (laughs) (laughs) What film was Hugh Jackman nominated for an Oscar for? Part of me wants to say Australia. Part of me is like Logan. Was he nominated for Logan? No, you have to pick one. Or is it just something else? You have to pick one. I'm going to say Les Miserables. Three for three. Let's go. Great job. (laughs) Les Mis. I did it, man. Lead actor nomination is only one. Great job. I have some dad trivia. Let's hear it. So dad sent in a, a trivia, movie entertainment trivia card game. So we've just been reading them off during intermission lately. First question, Anthony. On Cheers, he played former baseball player Sam Malone, the bar's owner. Ted Danson. Ted Danson is correct. Here's this. Here's one. This game show is fashioned after the guessing game Hangman. Wheel of Fortune? Yes. <laughs> it's Hangman. Basically, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> it's not that it kind of is. It is Hangman. <laughs> it's fucking... Yeah, I guess it's kind of like Hangman. I just said it's facts based off it. Oh, this is a good one. On Cartoon Network's Dexter's Laboratory, what was the name of Dex- Dexter's pesky sister? Didi! 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 Get out of my laboratory! Didi! <laughs> <laughs> Did he? <laughs> In On The Simpsons, which character repeatedly tries to murder Bart? <laughs> His own father? No, The Simpsons. Yeah, he strangles him every episode. Well, that's just like b- parenting. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's parenting. <laughs> you're like, I guess I, you're right. Homer does almost. Stra- yeah, yeah. Did you really stop doing that on the show? Yeah, I bet they did. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though. But yeah, I used to strangle him all the time. 
But there's, uh, there's a character who's always trying to kill him, like actually trying to murder him. Oh, it's um. Wow, it's been a while since I've watched The Simpsons. Holy crap! Who is trying to kill? It's not. Is it the mad scientist? No, no good guess. It's not no. Mr. Smithers. It's a really. It's a small character. Like they're in a lot of episodes, but they're. I can't. Sideshow Bob. Sideshow Bob. That's right. That's right. Okay, but also Homer <laughs> strangling his son. It's a cartoon, guys. <laughs> it's just a cartoon. <laughs> All right, here we you go. realize Simpsons isn't real, right? Oh, this so, is a good so question. We got, a, we got a comment on TikTok. Uh, it was like an old uh, Harry Potter clip, and someone said the word mudbloods, and someone commented, I'd really appreciate it if you stopped saying the word mudbloods, as I find it offensive to muggle-born wizards. They don't exist! I was like, they're, they're not, not real! You realize the wizards aren't real, right? <laughs> this, is, this is too much. <laughs> this is what the internet has done. I you can't like, even say a fictional term from a fictional movie. I was like, oh my god, you realize that's not real, right? It doesn't exist. It's not an offensive word to anybody because it's made up. <laughs> Holy crap! I was like, oh my god, you're seriously? You think elves are real too? <laughs> oh my god, it's so funny. Okay, here's a good question. Who took over as the host of the new Celebrity Apprentice when Donald Trump became president? Oh, fuck. Um, are they an actor? Yeah. Are they a comedian? No. Did they play sports at all? Mm, I wouldn't say they played sports. No. Um, fuck, I don't know Terry Crews. No, 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 what, no. no. Uh, think just an actor. I know, like I a was. super famous celebrity. I don't, I don't know. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold did? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I never even watched The Apprentice, so I don't know. I never watched it either, but I do remember, that's refreshing my memory, that one. I left. think you might, yeah, I think I remember seeing a Took trailer or something. A year. Yeah, I think you're right. Hmm. All right. What a time. <laughs> Who appeared in over 30 Albert Hitchcock films? Over 30? Who appeared in over 30 of them? Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Trick question. <laughs> That's a good question. Great answer. It's <laughs> <was> like <laughs> good answer. The Maxie's worked with an actors like four times, I think, or five. Maybe three or four. Yeah. That's, well, actually, yeah. Yeah. That's an three. excellent trivia question. It's an excellent answer. Thanks. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent skiing. <laughs> Two Ripley references today. <laughs> All right, Anthony. Do we have any haters or unsubscribes this episode? I know we filmed yesterday an episode. Oh, so we got we, some. Oh, we got some. we're not sparse at all with these. I collected some. <laughs> we got some good ones. All right, Danny Smith uh, DM'd us a great one. For your unsubscribe segment, number one, you never pronounce... <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. You never pronounce awry correctly. You always say Ari when it's awry. It hurts my ears. Back-to-back <laughs> -back episodes. <laughs> when, number two, when ranking movies, the closer a film is to number one should be considered higher on the list. But you always say lower. It hurts my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Unsubscribed. LOL. I'm a huge fan of you guys. I've been watch watching a ton of your videos. Keep delivering awesome content. Please feature this message in your unsubscribe segment. It would make my day. Uh, that's one of my favorites I've ever heard. That's awesome. That's so funny. Thank you for the support and for tuning in and having so much fun. <laughs> that's fucking three episodes in a row about Ari. <laughs> is, it, is it the same person or no? Different person. Wow. Yeah. Ari. 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 It's a rye. So we're saying Ari? You say Ari. You say so but I never even say the word. You so say it. Ari. It's a rye. A rye. A rye. Yeah. That's what I've been saying. 
<laughs> I've always said Arai. Yeah, we've been losing fans because of it. No, he said he loves it. Well, he says it hurts his brain, but he still watches. So that's how good the show is. We hurt his brain, but he's still like, fuck, it's good content. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, I mean, you, you mispronounce. I mean, it's going to happen. You called Neiman Nyman. Are we going <laughs> to Do we, do we really want to go? Hey, you mispronounce stuff all the time. We know this. I don't know what you're talking about. You always mispronounce things every episode, too. <laughs> what did I mispronounce so far today? Today, you mispronounced every word you said. <laughs> Zero words were mispronounced every by Anthony word. today. I'm editing this one. I'm going to make a compilation of all the things you mispronounced. <laughs> Good luck. All right. Also, Colin Six wrote in our Tom Cruise movie draft, no cocktail? Unsubscribed. <laughs> Cocktail's like his worst movie. But yeah, it probably yeah, is. It's a good joke. And then, that's it's it for unsubscribes. So for Apple reviews, we don't have any new ones on Apple Podcasts, so I don't have a new one to read. But if you'd like to add to the Apple Podcast reviews, leave one and I will get to it next episode. Anyone wants to write anything, all you need to do is use an email if you don't use Apple Podcasts to sign up. And you don't even need an iPhone. You can do it with Android. Just yeah, just download the app or go on your desktop. Wow, technology. Science, man. Space. Jinx. <laughs> Anthony, what is your stream streaming recommendation? <laughs> That's another word mispronounced. <laughs> <laughs> streaming is a hard one. I did not mispronounce it at all. <laughs> you fucking almost did. No, I, I, I hiccuped. <laughs> <laughs> what is your streaming recommendation? <laughs> recommendation. Recommendation. You're out, it's in your head now. Recommendation. You're, you're psyching yourself out. M. The Fritz Lang film. I watched it last night. It's so fucking good. It's amazing. It's like Zodiac, but like 80 years ago, pretty much. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a, it's about a, a child serial killer and how both the police and the local criminals start hunting the killer. It's incredible. My streaming recommendation is Last Days on Max. Nice. This is a Gus Van Sant film. A fictional telling of the last days of Kurt Cobain's Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck did I just? Kurt Cobain. And <laughs> water came out of my nose. Oh my god! You're right. I am in my head. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I just choked on water. It's out. It came out of my nose. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Kurt Cobain's last days before his suicide. <laughs> Kurt Cobain. You're going on 16 words mispronounced <laughs> so far today. It's a new record. <laughs> Kurt Cobain. <laughs> that might be the funniest thing ever. <laughs> All right, let's get back into the brilliant film Whiplash, directed and written by... Damien Giselle. One of my favorite parts of this film is sort of obviously the the infusion of jazz, of jazz, and kind of like I didn't really listen to jazz at all. And we're talking about how this film, like in La La Land, they're talking about bringing jazz to the young kids who aren't really listening to it, keeping it alive because it's dying, but also adding this sort of punk rock element to it. Obviously, the the practice and everything in terms of destroying your instruments, that's a very punk rock thing to do, like break a guitar on stage. But to see Andrew like punching through his drum kit and stuff like that and the intensity and the violence in this film, it reminds me of just punk rock or hardcore rock and roll. Yeah, when I see him punching the kit and, and screaming a piece of shit over and over again, he's talking about Fletcher. And, and it's just like the that's where he, it's his frustration with Fletcher. But they do a great job of, they do humanize Fletcher and they do show that he does have a heart and it's after he learns about the death of Sean and he plays uh, that CD of Sean's music and then he talks so glowingly about him and he even cries. 
and you see that Fletcher, he's a human. He's not a monster. He acts monstrously, but he's not like a sociopathic, horrible monster. He has a heart and he has love and the student Sean was clearly important to him and he was proud he was so proud of him and Sean's success and just that three minutes of him talking about Sean while that music's playing. That I think is one of the most important scenes in the film because we got to see Fletcher as a human being in that moment. And that's the midway point in the film. We've seen him do horrible things to the students. We've seen him act terribly and abusive. But then we see this moment of levity and you're like, oh my God, he is like an artist and he, he cares so much about this guy who passed away. So I think that was vital for the movie working is that little two minute scene. There's two other scenes where we see his humanity. Yeah. One of them is obviously towards the end when Andrew has left Schaefer and he stumbles upon this little jazz club and who's playing piano. We're seeing Fletcher play piano and obviously... Fletcher creates a master plan of humiliating Andrew because of this. But for a little bit, we get to see a different side of of Fletcher where he's playing. He's performing. We see the passion and we see the love that he has for music and for jazz as he's playing this very sweet, lovely melody on the piano. And, you know, he has a nice conversation at the point. At that point, we think he's having a nice conversation with Andrew because he seems like a nice guy. He's out of the classroom. He's out of his godlike presence of being in a jazz studio. And he can't abuse him in public yeah there's exactly there's true. no power dynamic he's not going to be fletcher as andrew knows him yeah and then there's another scene where we see a very human side of, of fletcher and this is before the first competition performance where you know the band's preparing they're about to go on stage and then andrew sees in a side hallway he sees fletcher talking to an older a guy and his little daughter and from the conversation, it's not spelled out to us, but you can assume that this was a former student of Fletcher's. And even he's very sweet to the guy. He's very sweet to the young girl's daughter. He's like, are you starting to play an instrument yet? And he's like, oh, yeah, she's starting to take piano lessons. He's like, oh, maybe you can come play in my band someday. I really like that. And he gives High the guy five. a hug. And yeah. he's like, oh, it's great to see you, man. I'll see you around. Stick around for the show. And it's like, oh, even the people he's treated horribly in his classroom, once they leave Schaefer and they go on to careers, you can see he actually cares about these people to an extent. And you can even see a hint of like, you could maybe say love at the end of the movie when he sees Andrew's performance on stage and they're flowing with each other and they're they're building this incredible soul together. You can see the admiration they have for each other. It really comes from the final two shots of their close-ups where they cut from, they went to the close-ups <clears throat> near, near the end right when Andrew stops playing, but then we're tight on their eyes and you can see JK smile with his eyes. And then that causes Andrew to smile. And then that was it. Like that's the connection is made there th from then on. They're going to have a great relationship. I think when that's how I see the film ending, like they're going to have a wonderful relationship for the rest of their lives. I also really like Melissa Benoit in this film. She plays Nicole and she actually went on to become Cara Danvers, a.k.a. Supergirl. So she's had a great career in television since being in this movie and some movies here and there, but that's just a, an awesome story for her to be in Whiplash than your Supergirl. It's pretty badass. Now, Nicole obviously works at the movie theater that Andrew attends frequently with, frequently with his father, and he's got a crush on her. And I think that Giselle, he knows human interaction really well, and he brings authenticity to it. Like, if you have a crush on somebody you see regularly that you don't know, like at the movies, at the gym, 
And Andrew does this thing where he orders his food, and she's like, Swedish fish this time? He's like, oh, not not this time. She knows his order. And he looks at her as he's walking to the theater a couple times, but she's just not paying attention. She's like, I'm not fucking work. I'm not looking at you, bro. So, like, you kind of always like, oh, is she is she looking at me? Oh, she doesn't like me. I don't have a chance <laughs> with her. Eventually asks her out. He builds up the courage. And when I like this movie because of the ups and downs that Andrew goes through. At this point, when Andrew asks Nicole out, he's made studio band. And he's also asked this girl he's got a crush on out with. So, like, he's kind of got everything he's ever wanted at, for a small period of time in this movie. And they have a nice relationship to an extent. They're similar in terms of they don't have many friends. And they're sort of, I guess, away from home in a way. I guess for Andrew, they I've always... They feel out of place. Yeah, they feel out of place. She goes to a school called Fordham where, you know, she's like, I don't like anybody there. I don't think they like me. And I have no purpose right now. I don't have a goal. I don't know what I want to do with my life. Whereas Andrew has intense purpose. He has a huge objective. He knows his goal. And he goes to one of the most prestigious music schools in North America at Schaefer. And obviously that's a dynamic that gets in the way between them. And I think a lot of people might interpret their relationship or Andrew breaking up with Nicole as being a dick. Because he is a dick to her in terms of we obviously learn that he's not been spending a lot of time with her. They barely see each other enough as it is already. And he breaks up with her and he basically tells her like this is how it's going to go. You're going to start to resent me because I want to be the greatest drummer of all time. So I'll be spending more time drumming than ever before. And even when we're together, I'll just be thinking about drumming. I'll be thinking about my charts. And so you're just going to resent me. And I'm just going to like break it off clean right now. And that's a terrible way to go about it because you're telling the other person how they're supposed to feel or how they're going to feel. It would have been simpler if he just ended it right there. But he kind of arrogantly goes off on this tangent of like, don't worry, this is what's going to happen. And I don't care about your feelings. That's how I interpret it. Very arrogantly. And we we and she even spells it out for him by basically repeating again how absurd it is. She's like, "So what you're doing is so important, and I'm just nothing, and you're gonna be great, and I'm just gonna be a uh, uh, nothing." And she says, "What the fuck's wrong with you?" She, and he goes, "Yeah, that's pretty much it." She's like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> now Andrew could have easily turned, be, been an asshole in this movie and unlikable because of scenes like that, but. Because he suffers so much, I think because he goes through so much suffering, he goes through so much pain and turmoil, and he, he really goes through it in this film, that makes the audience care about him. Because even though he acts like an asshole to her, and he's very unlikable to other people, no friends, he's addicted to the other musicians, but because we see him go through so much pain and suffering, for me, as an audience member, that's what keeps him from being unlikable. We stick with him, and we we are, we gravitate and respect his perseverance and his drive and his willingness to deal with the sacrifice of the suffering. So that makes him a likable character in my eyes. Plus, Miles Teller is a very likable actor and character actor, and it shows his intense range because he can really do anything. And when you see, obviously, this, he plays a very normal kind of dorky guy that... Is sort of invisible to the rest of the world. He plays shy really well. Yeah, and shy nervous. and nervous. Yeah. yeah. 
extremely well. I get shy and nervous watching his performance. I'm like, yeah. oh my god, I'm talking to a girl right it, now. It I'm, I'm getting seemed, hot. Yeah, it like, seems, you can feel yeah. it, like him getting sweaty, like yeah. talking to a girl. Because in real life, he's very confident. Yeah, but also when you see Top Gun Maverick, he's so cool and suave and the man and, and confident to an extent. Obviously, not when he's flying, he loses. Sometimes. <laughs> 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 he gets it. He gets the confidence by the end of the film. <laughs> you mean the pilot who can't make the shot <laughs> in person? He's playing piano in front of a bar of people. Yeah. You know, I mean, shit like that. That's <laughs> <laughs> not that he can't take the shot. Just I mean, he, he, he flies slow. Yeah, flies slow. <laughs> flies slow. <laughs> but you know, it shows the range of Miles Teller and how charismatic he is, even when he's being very shy. He's insanely likable, and I think that's a, a great testament to his just personality, not, let alone his acting skill, because he's obviously very, very talented. And I would love to talk about one of my favorite parts of the film, and that's the first jazz competition where. Studio band's going up for the first competition, and obviously Andrew's part of the band. He's the backup drummer. The alternate. And, yeah, the alternate. And Tanner is the core drummer. And obviously this is the scene where, you know, Andrew's really just happy to be there. And that's the, at this point in the film. He's like, I'm happy to be a part of studio band, let alone not being – I'll be an alternate for now, but I'm just going to learn. And, you know, he, he takes that on. And they play their first set, and it goes really well. And then the second set, Tanner gives Andrew the music to hold on to during their break. And then Andrew, he has the music in the folder, and he goes to a Pepsi machine. He puts the fo- So the shot is he puts the folder on the chair, turns to the Pepsi machine, gets a soda, and then Tanner's like, where's the fucking music? We need the music right now. Where is it? And then he looks to the chair, and the music's gone. What happened to the folder? I think that Fletcher took the folder. I think that he knew Tanner wasn't going to be a great, but Tanner, Tanner's very good, but he was he's not going to be what he needs him to be. He sees something in Andrew, and I think that Fletcher, I don't think it was Fletcher's plan. I think Fletcher, he thinks on his feet. He does multiple times in this film, like jazz. You know what I mean? Impro- improvises. He pr- improvises the whole sh- uh, showdown at the end of humiliating Andrew. He got that idea on the spot. I think when he saw Andrew in the jazz club, he's like, oh, here's my chance to get retribution. And so he improvised immediately. This whole way of getting back at Andrew. So I think Fletcher looks for opportunities and seizes them. So I think Fletcher just maybe happened to be nearby and took the folder immediately. That's an insanely cool theory. I like that a lot. Thanks. Because if that's true, Damien Chazelle does a great job of throwing you off that scent by having Fletcher scream in the background. He screams Tanner. Like right after Tanner comes up to him at the Pepsi machine. And it's possible because... Andrew's just kind of in his own. He's like, oh, maybe a janitor came by and swiped it. So I also don't – I don't think that Andrew threw the music out. I think Andrew genuinely lost the oh, music. Oh, I, I agree too, yeah. I think it's shown clearly that he didn't do anything. Because I don't think Andrew's really cutthroat yet. He's not willing to just like cuss out or curse out other players at this point because he's just happy to be in studio band. And I know a lot of people theorize that he's the one that got rid of the sheet music. I love the theory that – that Fletcher's the one that took the music yeah. because you can tell that everyone knows that Tanner needs to read the music. He even screams at my at Andrew in band practice, like turn the fucking sheets, turn the sheets while they're playing because he's dependent on reading. And as a composer and the who runs the band, I'm sure for Fletcher, that's a nuisance for him. That's something that's gonna ruin them at some point. And also it's an opportunity to test out another drummer. It's not and it's also it it could have been also an opportunity to test Tanner. You yeah, know what I mean, good points. That's so, a great point. I I don't think it's I think it's clear that Andrew didn't do it because we stay with Andrew for the whole sequence. We're it's very his, fast. Yeah, yeah, we're with his perspective. So if 
he's if he hid the folder, we would have seen him hide the folder because we're in his perspective for the film. And I don't think Chazelle is trying to fool the audience there. But I do think that uh, Fletcher took the folder as a way. It could have been either as a way to test Tanner to see if Tanner can pull this off without looking, without reading the music. And then Tanner failed, failed that test. But then someone else came up and stepped up and, and uh, Andrew stepped up to do it. So I think that I think a lot of people you can look at it as he's he's setting up Andrew for the test. But also, he could be testing Tamer, Tanner, this other drummer. That's a good point. I uh, think that Fletcher 100% did it. I love that theory. That's so cool. I'm with you, man. That's cool. Yeah. I like that a lot. And then so that's why he yells in the background because he was probably walking by, took the music, knew it was Tanner's, and then immediately screamed Tanner's name knowing that he didn't have the music Did so you that know, he could confront him immediately. That's actually Damien Chazelle screaming Tanner in the background. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm guessing JK probably wasn't on set that day. That's really cool, man. I like that a lot. I think that makes sense. And it, yeah, it works with the character because a janitor wouldn't just like a janitor wouldn't take this take, off a chair yeah, and just put yeah, exactly. that in the trash. Yeah, they would think like, oh, this is definitely someone's folder. It would have to be for a reason someone took that. I like that. And, Jay, and Fletcher had reasons for taking it. But this is integral to Andrew's growth as a musician because he knocks it out of the park and they win the competition. Even when he starts playing, he's like, is he perfect or is he just good enough for right now? They still win the competition. But obviously that sequence starts when they're playing with Andrew on the drums that Fletcher is just like watching him only. Then eventually he moves away from Andrew and starts paying attention to the rest of the band. And they win. That's what are you doing, Tanner? We don't have time for alternates. Core only. <laughs> <laughs> and now Andrew is the core of studio band, but just temporarily, like we talked about earlier. But I would say, so every all the other musicians, they don't trust Andrew. And the piano player is like, you don't touch my fucking folder. <laughs> and then Tanner's like, do not touch my drum set. But ultimately, Fletcher was completely right where he said to Tanner, like, the the folder was the sheets are your responsibility. Why would you give them to the alternate? They're your responsibility. And so Tanner lost the job. It wasn't taken from him. He wasn't tricked. He should have maintained. He should have held on to that music the whole time, especially if he needs it. So F Tanner lost the job. The next big sequence in terms of a competition, we have the Dunlin competition. Oh my God! Now before the competition, the day before, which turns into an all night session, is. In class, Studio Band, we have three drummers now competing for the part for Studio Band. We have Neiman, we have Connolly, and we have Tanner. Now, Fletcher puts these three, three guys through hell while they're trying to find the drummer to play the part the next, which is the next day, which is insane. And they're, they're there till, what, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and he's pushing them to their limits. They are sweating their asses off. They're all bleeding all over the drum kits. And eventually, Neiman wins the part, but it's, a, it's an insane... Uh, sequence of basically musical chairs on a drum set back and forth back and forth all through them back to back to back until eventually Andrew eventually earns the part by drumming faster and harder and more and for a longer period of time than anybody and he earns the parts and then he tells Fletcher tells the other two to wipe the blood off his drum kit it's intense it's really intense and again like we said earlier it's not like a congratulations you got the parts like Neiman you earned it and it's, it's interesting the way that Fletcher treats the drummers compared to the other musicians. I wonder if that's because drumming might be an insanely important part of the band, clearly. And he's even, like, apologizing to the other band members. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry about this, guys. But, you know, take a shit. Take an hour. take Have a coffee break. We're going to be here for a while. So I apologize to the other musicians. But we're going to find a drummer for tomorrow. It might be 
more important to Fletcher as someone who's looking for the next Charlie Parker. Maybe he think maybe drumming's his favorite, and in his opinion, the most prized part of the band. And maybe so Whiplash and Caravan, the music he writes is more drum centric. Well, I don't think that um, he's specifically looking for the the next. Drum oh no, no, legend. yeah, but I think I, it's Charlie Parker is just I think an ambiguous term for the next great jazz musician. No, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know that, but I'm saying maybe Fletcher does covet the drummer more than anyone else and he writes his music to make it more challenging and more drum centric than other kinds of jazz songs. is he the writer of the music i don't i'm guessing that whiplash and caravan are his i'm let me check that i'm not sure about that i think that's what it's implied by me he's just a conductor or com- i don't know if he's a composer in whiplash let's see i think this. that he's does Fletcher i've always assumed that he's the composer the of music. whiplash and caravan because they play other songs that aren't his, but I think I, I, I've always assumed that he's the writer of Whiplash, that it's his thing. Blah blah blah. Who wrote music in Whiplash? Obviously, Justin Hurwitz is the composer of the film. What genre? Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't find anything right now. Did Fletcher write the Whiplash song and Caravan? That's a good question. I've never really thought about that. I've always just insu- assumed he was the uh, conductor in the. The leader of the band, obviously. What do you, what are you seeing over there? Um, hold on. Maybe I can find. It's it's gonna say it on the on, on the, the music. music. Yeah, on the sheet music. Find a close up of Whiplash sheet music. It doesn't say composer. It just says Whiplash. I always thought it was more of um sort of music that everybody knows or learns in jazz schools. You know what I mean? No, I I've always looked at it as Whiplash is Fletcher's baby. Like, that's his music that he wrote. That's how I look and at it. And that's why he calls it his tempo. Yeah. That's that, that's the whole thing. Like, that's his tempo. Whiplash is his song. He wrote it. And that's why he's so obsessive about finding the right um, players for all the parts. So I look at it as the whole thing of my tempo is, like, this is mine. I wrote this. Um, but he is a conductor. I just I've always looked at it as he's the writer of Whiplash. Ba, 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 ba. All right, well maybe maybe someone can look into that and yeah. let us know uh, more information on that. But I mean we can go with that. So this competition, the Dunlin competition, is intense because they leave the session of obviously Andrew earns the part, and he's his hands are covered in blood. He's exhausted, and they walk out that alley, and for the audience, Fletcher goes. All right, uh, tomorrow, 5 p.m., give yourself two hours to get there for the show. And you're like, they ha- he has to play tomorrow? And also, when they pick Andrew as the drummer, when Fletcher picks him, they begin. They're like, all right, now we can now start we can practicing. Start pra- yeah. That's insane what he goes through in the sequence. And then obviously, Dunlin competition is a nightmare of bad luck for Andrew because the bus he's on gets a flat tire. He gets a rental car. He's late. He forgets his sticks. He gets there on time to get ready for band, obviously, to get set up on stage. But he forgets his sticks at the rental car place. And then in a rush to get back, he gets hit by a car and gets T-boned, probably running a red light. And Fletcher made the mistake of letting him play because he was clearly fucked up. But it's a part of the movie where I'm like, I wonder why Fletcher let Andrew play. Because he was clearly messed up, covered in blood, wounded. And Fletcher thought about it for a moment, 
And then he's like, okay, you're on in 10 if you have your own sticks. Maybe he's like, let's see what you got. Yeah. Because this is this is like his prodigy right here. Let's yeah. see what you can do here. And he's just covered in blood. <laughs> and then, obviously, Andrew fails, drops his sticks, and then he attacks Fletcher in front of the crowd, and that's what kicks him out of school. And then we it sets up the third act of Andrew being uh, approached by the council of the victim of the, the Sean case asking for him to rat out Fletcher as being abusive emotionally and physically to students, causing really the the leading to the cause of Sean's suicide and other students. And that's what eventually kicks out Fletcher. And I think that Andrew was just like, I've lost everything. Fuck it. I'm taking him with me. Yeah. They both destroy each other to get what they want, and they don't realize that that's what it takes to get their goals achieved. And then obviously, you know, Andrew's living a life outside of music. He's got a job at a sub place, at a cafe. He has an apartment now. His dad's helping him out. He fills up the cabinets with gushers. They go to the movies still. They watch movies in his living room. And he's got a new life until he obviously stumbles upon Fletcher in that jazz club. And... One of the best conversations in the film, obviously, is when they're drinking and talking about jazz. And Fletcher, one of the most iconic lines in the film, he says, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. And saying that, you know, if you want someone to achieve greatness or if you want to achieve greatness, you have to push them. And then Andrew's trying to counter it. Is there a line? Is there a line to making a, the next Charlie Parker? Do you have to put them through that? And then Fletcher's like, of course there isn't, because the next Charlie Parker wouldn't get discouraged. The line, they wouldn't, there would be no line for them. Yeah. And so, and he's saying, like, the, I'm looking for Charlie Parker, the next great, and, and a great wouldn't be discouraged. They would keep pushing. And non-greats, just like average musicians, would just give up or walk away. And then what's he say to him? I never had a Charlie Parker right in Andrew's face. He's like, I tried. No one can take that away from me. I, I honestly really tried, but I never had a Charlie Parker. And then Andrew's like, in my in my eyes, I see like Andrew like pissed off by this. He's still pushing him. Yeah. Then obviously invites him to drum at the JVC festival. And what's interesting is Andrew calls Nicole, invites her to the to the, the the performance, and learns that she has a boyfriend. And in a way, I think that gave him the 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 wherewithal to be like, okay. I'm just going to go for this again. I still have nothing. Still have <laughs> have nothing. And I think it's also a moment where he realized he ruined relationships and, um, and sacrificed things that maybe he also wanted. And then that was the decision where, like, I think he finally chose drums. Because if he wanted a relationship, if he didn't want a relationship, he wouldn't have called her. You know what I mean? He was, like, kind of testing the water. Exactly. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to go full tilt, balls to the balls, just drumming. And the J JVC Festival is great. It's an incredible plan by Fletcher. Well, it's important first and foremost because he tells the band, you know, this is a life-changing crowd. These people, they make one call and you got the Lincoln Center job. You got this, the Blue Chips job. You are set, basically, for your career going forward. Or if you mess up, they'll never forget. Yeah, he says, these people, these cats, they never forget. And so he's setting Andrew up for a complete failure. And basically, trying he's trying to ruin Andrew's future and his life as a drummer. He's trying to just completely destroy Andrew, like how Andrew destroyed Fletcher. And it's a, it's a really smart plan. He gives Andrew the wrong song, 
Well, he tells him we're going to play Whiplash yeah. Caravan, the yeah. stuff from Studio Bin. Yeah, and then he they play they start playing something different that Andrew's never heard before, and he can't play with them. And he it's ends called up swinging, up swinging, and then he just stops and he walks out. And like you, we talked about earlier, his father embraces him in the back room, but then Andrew decides, "Fuck it, I'm going to go back out there. I'm going to do what I want to do." But also, before they start playing, Fletcher comes yes. up to Andrew on the case, says, "You think I'm fucking stupid?" I know it was you. Yeah. And then Andrew's like, wait, oh my God, he knows. Yeah, it was fantastic. And then the drum solo is amazing. This is where, you know, the editor, this is what he won the Oscar for, the editing of this. Because it's not like, so they got a ton of coverage of the performance. And first of all, I think it was really smart. They do not show any reaction shots of other people while Andrew's destroying the drums. And we never see the reaction from the crowd. Yeah, so I thought it was so smart. They only stick to Andrew and Fletcher with the editing. There's no other shots. Like, I think every other director would have been like, showed like the bass player, like, whoa, this guy's killing it. Or like someone else, like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. But they didn't. They didn't show any reaction shots of anyone. It's all Andrew and Fletcher. So first of all, that's the first smart decision they made. And second of all, they got so much coverage. They have different kinds of shots, different kinds of setups. They have insert shots, close-ups, wides, what have you. Overheads. All this stuff. But it's not like they didn't they didn't just like edit it all together. Like, oh like, now an insert, now a wide, blah 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 blah. There's like there's like chapters to the edit of the performance. And so for example, all of the like the tight insert shots, they are all together in a group in the second half of the performance. And we go from wider to closer. And I like how they didn't just like throw in randomly. Oh, this is a cool shot. That's a cool shot. There's actually like a storyline to the edit of the performance of Andrew's drum solo. And then combining that with the reactions of Fletcher and then the close-ups of Miles Teller's face at the end. It, I thought it was just brilliant editing. And there, it told its own story outside of like, let's just put together a bunch of cool shots of the performance. Yeah, and this whole sequence is incredible. When he starts playing and then Fletcher comes up to him halfway through this opening of the solo he's like what are you doing man and andrew's so confident and he tells him i'll cue you in and then fletcher's like oh he's feeling oh, it. Yeah, oh yeah oh yeah right. yeah you can see fletcher is getting off on this moment he's like feeling it dude this is the best he's felt in his entire life you can see in his eyes i think i've finally done it i think i've finally created a charlie parker i think i've finally achieved my goals and it's really incredible drumming. I When I watch this movie, I've seen it like six times. I am freaking moving with the music. This whole solo is incredible. I love the shot where they he, he whip pans it left and right with the drums as he's going left and right on the drum kit. Yeah, and the drum solo itself is its own story. We have builds and we have climax. So we, it slows it down, then he builds it back up. And I love the only other bandmate we really see reacting to this is there's a, a short wide shot, a quick wide shot of the bass player. He's like looking at Andrew like, holy fucking shit, this is the craziest <laughs> shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> but aside from that, we, like you said, we only see Andrew and Fletcher, but that's just like a side shot of that yeah. of that character and that actor. And it's sensational when they build it up and Fletcher rips his, his jacket off and throws it on the ground. He's got the guns out. He's ready to go. <laughs> He's got everyone queued up, ready to, to finish this off. And then, bam, this great finale. And then the shot of cutting to each other. They're both smiling because they finally both achieved their greatest desires. Andrew is one of the greats and maybe the greatest drummer alive right now in the jazz world. And Fletcher has created the next Charlie Parker, and he knows it, and they finish off with the great finale. And I think that it all it's all set up by the story about Charlie Parker. And, he, and he, a year later, he got on stage, and he, he pulled out the greatest drum solo anybody's ever heard. 
And so I like to think that this performance is the greatest drum solo that's ever been performed since Charlie Parker's solo. That's how I look at it. And that's how like powerful it is for Fletcher, someone who knows the music. He understands it that much, and this is how big it is. And it's monumental for Fletcher, I think. Yeah, and Charlie Parker's not a drummer. He's a Sorry. saxophonist, yeah. saxophone player. So yeah. just in general, like this, this the solo, solo. story. Yeah. The story of Charlie Parker is ambiguous to any instrument, any player. But yeah, I love this movie, and what an ending, and... Your hair is standing up if you're not if you if you if your hair is not standing up when you watch this finale, then I don't know what to tell you, man. You don't get your movies. Your hair standing up. If your hair's not, no, you're like goosebumps. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got it's, goose, an, yeah, it's a I common expression, Anthony. My hair standing. I, I mean, it's, a, it's an expression, but I would say goosebumps would be more. That is, hair is more, a, no, standing more, on. No, that is a no, common expression. I'm saying like getting goosebumps in this is better phrase for the situation. It's an idiom. I feel like when your hair standing up, it's like scared. I know what an idiom is. No, that's just cats. <laughs> I think hair standing up. I think you spent up, too much time with judo. No, I think hair standing up is like a. It's scary. That is an expression of of shock and just. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's dude. I that's it. Totally fits. Totally fits. I know what an idiom is. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you aware of the term? <laughs> it's not like your hair's. So Anthony, your hair's not literally like standing like, up. Like like you got electrocuted. <laughs> like my hair wouldn't be like a flat top. Like it's just an expression <laughs> where you can feel tingling on your skin and like the hair follicles all around your body. Oh, I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> your hair follicles are standing up. <laughs> no, well, yeah, yeah, I get goosebumps every time I see the end of this movie. It is every, no matter how many times I've seen. It. Yeah, how do you interpret it then? So. So at the end of the movie, you I think you just said that him and Andrew and Fletcher have a great relationship. Is that what you said afterwards? Like, I, that's think after think? The, I think after this, they're going to have a great relationship. Working relationship and friendship. That's interesting. Because I think Andrew reached his, the peak. And from now on, Andrew's going to be an extremely successful drummer. He's going to be like playing at Lincoln Center and stuff. And, and Fletcher will like see his performances. And they'll be – I think they'll be – Good friends after this. You think it'll be just like in that hallway with the piano player with his daughter? I think it'll be more so because he's the guy that Fletcher's been looking for all his life. And so I think that Fletcher and Andrew are actually going to become very close after this. Yeah, so if Andrew's the best jazz drummer in the country right now because of Fletcher, obviously he'll say, like, it's because of Fletcher. And that's all Fletcher wants. Even You could probably argue that Fletcher doesn't even want the prestige. He just wants to know that he's done it. I think Fletcher just wants to be able to, like, I created this. He doesn't need anyone to know about it, but he, needs, he just needs to find that player. And that goes into this insane God complex of the character, which we haven't really even talked about at all, which I think the lighting of Fletcher and a lot of the sequences show his godlike presence amongst the characters and amongst for the audience. But also he has the godlike personality where I created this person. Like you just said, those words mean yeah. that he has a God complex, which he does. 100%. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When he's in studio band, when he's in front of the band, he is God. What he says goes. They listen to every command of his. They are dead silent, almost beyond military discipline. They are controlled completely by Fletcher. I look at Fletcher as someone who didn't have the talent, but he had the will. He just couldn't become the great, a great musician. But he, but he could have if he had more talent. And so since he was a failure as, as being a great musician, then he's like, I want to cr- hone and craft the great. I can make them happen. I'm a god. I'm trying to find my chosen one, yeah. basically. But I like, think I'm he, trying to find my Messiah. I look at Fletcher as someone who came from, not so, I wouldn't say failure, but like in his eyes, failure to be a, be a great. 
I think he realized that early on in his career that I'm never going to be a great, but I can make the great. And I know I know how to I know what to look for, and I know how to hone the a great. So I'm going to pursue that with my life. I'm going to try to find the next legend. Man, this and for him is... that's enough, because he feels like, um, he says it would be depriving the world of like the great next great musician. So for, in his eyes, he thinks he's. He sees himself as doing the world a service by trying to find this next legend. Yeah, he says to Andrew in that jazz club sequence where they're having the, the cocktail, where he says, if Charlie Parker never became Charlie Parker, then that'd be a tragedy to the world. Yeah, yeah. There'd be no exactly. bird. Yeah. So I think that he's trying in his eyes to make the world a better place by finding the next bird. I like it. I love this movie. It it's is great. itself a legendary film, and I think it's going to age so well. I also agree, like I said earlier, that I think this is still Damien Chazelle's best film, even though it's a $3 million movie with the, limited the, techniques. You can see the techniques there. Yeah. It's just he doesn't have the budget. Like You can see some of the shots are so artistic and so Damien Chazelle in his style, but they couldn't afford to do it with every shot. But now he can do that with every single shot. Yeah. I mean, his other films are better looking and they're better made. Yeah. Babylon's phenomenal. Yeah, Babylon like, looks so good. Babylon's a wonderful production. But I still I still think that overall as a story and as, as a film, Whiplash is the best thing he's done. I think so too. And that's not saying anything negative about his other films. Lala Lane has 14 Oscar yeah, nominations. He only yeah. made, he, he's an amazing director. But I do think that... Some directors, their best work is their early ones. And so far, I would say it's just the fact. It's just that Whiplash is a perfect movie. Yeah. It's a perfect movie. I mean, Scorsese made Taxi Driver in 1976. Yeah. That's a long time ago and yeah. still arguably his best movie mm -hmm. in a, for a lot of people. It's up there. And, I mean, it's been 50 years since he made that almost. In yeah. People, in, yeah. So he's still early in his career. There's nothing wrong with an early film being your best because, yeah. I mean, Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs, a lot of people, that's their, they think that's Pulp his fiction. best movie. Yeah, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. 1994. Yeah. You know, I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's, it's actually incredible. Weezer. <laughs> the Blue Album. <laughs> that's not their first album, is it? Is it their first studio album? Blue Album was their first one, wasn't it? Yeah, actually, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, Blue Album. My name is Jonas. Yeah. First album, bro. That's a banging album. Yeah, man. That is, so, yeah, that's a good record, man. That's yeah. a good, what a picture. What a picture. What a record. I'm just referring to albums as records. When did you? People still do. No, I mean, it's not like you used to. You said it like you used to say it. You know, I missed back in the, remember in the 90s? <laughs> we never called them back records. Back in the 70s and 80s, even in the 90s, we still called them records. No, Anthony. we called them albums. It wasn't until CDs came out when we were, you know. We called them albums. Of age. We called them albums. Albums and CDs. You did not grow up in the 70s. <laughs> we, we, maybe we always called them albums. Maybe I should have. Maybe you should have. Go to India. Go. Go to India. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody stop you. Go to India. Knocked up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything else on Whiplash, Anthony? No, it's uh, ten out of ten. I gave it a five star Letterbox rating last night. Ten out of ten. It absolutely is a five star film on Letterbox. Ten on IMDb. I think it will remain a top fifty movie on IMDb. Forever. Yeah, with that many ratings, it's not going to go away. With almost a million ratings. Yeah. And it's an eight point freaking five. That's insane. It's an all time. It's an all time movie, and people know it. It's universally loved. You know, and. I, I was so excited to finally do a solo episode on this. Because I know, it's been forever. We talked about it in 2021, but that was a La La Land versus Whiplash movie. It was kind of talking about them both at the same time. But I liked it because it deserves 
meticulous attention, and I, I really loved watching it again, I think for the fifth or sixth time, but I hadn't seen it in a few years. Same, I think it's been like a couple of years since I've seen it and last. Man, the music is so good. Justin Hurwitz is such a phenomenal composer, and I think this showed a great talent for him as well in an early film because he's been working with Jamie Giselle and all of his movies, and they knew each other when they were in school, so it's really cool that they have built such a great career together. They have a great symbiosis. And he's got that now with Linus Sandgren as well as a DP. I think uh, Chazelle is one of the best directors working today. Oh, for he sure. really is. Absolutely. And Whiplash is a banger. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Don't forget to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, leave the comments everywhere on every single video. Share this with your friends and family members. Even if you're listening on Spotify and Apple, sharing a podcast is the best way for it to grow organically. Leave those five-star ratings on Spotify and Apple. Thank you all so much for tuning in. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy-Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.